Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Blog Talk Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetic Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. Good morning, Four Persons Blog Talk Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetic Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing the Immaculate Conception of Mary and where we find that in the Bible. If you have a question on this topic, feel free to call in at 515-602-9655. If you would like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's Catholic with a K and at the number four persons.com. I'm also available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. So first of all, everything that the Catholic Church teaches about Mary is based on what the Church teaches about Jesus. The Immaculate Conception is a teaching that Mary was conceived without original sin and never committed any sin. It is not about Jesus being conceived without sin. Uh, Growing up as a cradle Catholic, I often wondered, you know, how is it that Mary conceived Jesus on December 8th and then gave birth to him on December 25th? However, I didn't understand at that time that the teaching about Mary's Immaculate Conception was about her Immaculate Conception, not Jesus' Immaculate Conception. Modern Protestants will point to Romans 3.21-26, through 26, where it talks about righteousness through faith. 
starting at verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. Then picking up with verse 27 here, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded? On what principle? On the principle of works? No, but on the principle of faith. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of their faith and the uncircumcised through their faith. Do we then overthrow, overthrow the law by his faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. To understand this, you need to know that Paul was writing to a Jewish and Gentile Christian church in Rome. The Jew, Jewish Christians were always trying to put, hold themselves over the Gentile Christians and push the Jewish works of the law on them. Paul is telling the Christian community that both groups have sinned not just the Gentiles. This is the all that Paul is referring to. All of those Christians, both the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. Now, both Protestant and Catholic Christians agree that those without reason, like babies and those who are mentally impaired, can't commit personal sin. And we understand that we are not saved by works, but we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ unto the works that God has laid out for us to do. And that is what Paul is writing about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Protestants love to quote verses 8 and 9, but they have to skip over verse 10 because that's the part that tells us that we are saved by works also. And this is backed up by James' writings in chapter 2, where he says three times we are saved by works and not by faith alone. Because the works we do are Jesus' works done through us. Protestants also like to point to Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 49 where Mary's song of praise is, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has regarded the low state of his handmaiden. For behold, 
henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now Protestants will claim that since Mary rejoices in her Savior, that she needed saving. Therefore, she was not sinless. Catholics agree that Mary needed Jesus as her Savior. Since God is outside of time and space, Jesus used the grace that he merited through his sacrifice on the cross to save Mary before he came into this world. Through Mary. The analogy often used is that if you save a person from falling into a mud puddle, you have saved them from getting muddy before they got muddy. You can think of it as Mary being preemptively being saved by Jesus before he entered into this world to save the rest of us. There was an early church heresy that uh, Jesus did not exist before he was born of the Virgin Mary, or at some point in time, God created him. Uh, this was the basis of the Arian heresy. And the church established that Jesus is co-eternal with God the Father. And John 1.1 backs this up in that it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus saved Mary so that she could be the holy vessel or new ark of the covenant for the word made flesh to be contained in it. John 1.1 again tells us, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So Jesus existed as the word of God before he came into this world and took on flesh through Mary. The original Ark of the Covenant was made with acacia wood, which didn't rot. The wood was overlaid with gold, so it would always shine and not need polishing. The Ark was covered with a blue cloth as it is being carried around as shown in Numbers chapter 4. Starting at verse 4, this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of the meeting, the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on covering of goatskin and spread over that a cloth of all blue and, put, and shall put in its poles. The ark had God's word in it, the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's staff that budded to show his authority and some of the miraculous manna from the desert. The ark was so holy that no one could touch it. Uzzah had, was struck dead for touching the ark in 2 Samuel verses six, chapter 6, verse 7. In the book of Revelation, at the end of chapter 11, John is looking into heaven, and he writes, God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And then starting into verse, or chapter 12, we find a woman clothed with the sun. Now, we know that the when John looks into heaven, he sees 
uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and that Ark of the Covenant is a woman. It's not the golden box that the Jews were familiar with. And that woman is Mary, and we'll cover that a bit more a bit later. Now let's compare some parallels between the original Ark of the Covenant, the golden box, and Mary. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 5 through 11, that covers about David and the Ark of the Covenant. And in Luke 1, verses 43, 44, and 56, which is about Elizabeth and Mary. First of all, David dances for joy in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5. And then John leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb in Luke chapter 1, verse 44. Second, David calls out, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9. And Elizabeth calls out, why is it this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? In Luke chapter 1, verse 43. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, a few miles outside of Jerusalem for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole house in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 11. Mary remained about three months with Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, verse 56, a few miles outside of Jerusalem. So we see the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament and the parallels of the Ark of the Covenant in the New Testament. For first century Jews, this would have been very easy for them to understand. For modern people who don't know their Old Testament and New Testament, it's a lot harder. But the understanding of Mary being immaculately conceived so that she could be the Ark of the Covenant, requires an understanding of the whole Bible. We have to use the whole Bible from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. In Genesis 3.15, we see a foreshadowing of Mary as the new Eve, who was born without sin like the original Eve. Here in chapter 3, we read this quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God tells the serpent that he will put enmity between the woman's seed and Satan's seed. At this time in history, it was understood that the seed was in the man's semen, which grew inside the fertile soil of a woman's womb. The mention of a woman's seed was quite extraordinary because women would not have had a seed to produce offspring. It was expected that that seed would come from a man. We now know through modern genetics that the genetic characteristics and the genetic information comes from both the mother and the father. And this was actually discovered by a Catholic monk in the 1800s who noticed that when he crossbred his flowers, that they would get characteristics from both the mother and the father. He would 
take the pollen from the stamen and fertilize the pistil. And notice that the characteristics of both the father and the mother ended up in the offspring. In the 1960s, it was discovered that the chromosomes inside the nucleus of a cell contains DNA. And the individual sections on the DNA, um, on the chromosomes, which contains DNA, are what we call genes. And the sperm cells and the egg cell of the man and the egg cells of the woman both contain half of the genetic information of the mother or father. And when the sperm cell joins the egg cell, that cell now has a full set of DNA. So you get a little bit of biology along with your Bible today. <laughs> so in the New Testament, Jesus calls woman Mary in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana. Jesus also calls Mary woman when he gives her to John in chapter 19. Jesus calls Mary woman to connect her back to, to the Eve who is called woman in Genesis 2.22. The title is both respectful and theologically important in revealing Mary's role in our salvation. In Revelation chapter 12, we find a woman in heaven who gives birth to the man-child that rules with a rod of iron. The man-child that rules with a rod of iron is Jesus. Only one woman gave birth to Jesus. That woman is Mary. Eve is an earlier type of the woman Mary, and the nation of Israel also gave birth to Mary through its continued existence. But these are both secondary types of Mary, or types of the woman, in Revelation chapter 12. It plainly says that a woman gave birth to the man-child, and there is only one woman that gave birth to that man-child, and that woman is Mary. And we'll have a little more deeper information on that woman now from Luke chapter 1 where we find the birth of Jesus foretold. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent out from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will, be, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him, give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom 
there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, the original Greek used for the word full of grace in the Gospel of Luke is karakatomene. It is a perfect passive participle of the verb participle is very strong. In addition, karatu belongs to a group of verbs ending in the omicron omega. They have in common that they mean to put a person or thing into a state indicated by the root. Therefore, leukos, which means white, so leuko means to make white, then karakatu should mean to put into charis. That word charis can mean either favor or grace, but if we translate by favor, we must keep firmly in mind that favor must not mean merely that God is, as it were, sits there and smiles at someone without giving anything. That would be Pelagian, salvation possible without grace. So for certain, God does not give something and put something, and that God does not give something and that something is grace, our share, and let me try that again. So for, so, for certain, God does give something, and that something is grace, our share in his own life. So karakatu means to put into grace. But then karakatu is used in this place of the name Mary. This is like our English usage in which we say, for example, someone is Mr. Tennis, when referring to a great tennis player. That means he is the ultimate in tennis. So then caricatomene should mean Miss Grace, the ultimate in grace. Therefore, we could reason that fullness of grace implies an immaculate conception. The Immaculate Conception of Mary shows that from the very beginning, she was full of grace and continues to be full of grace and continued to be full of grace for the rest of her life. And it's because God set aside Mary, especially so that she could become the new Ark of the Covenant to give birth to Jesus. It was a preparation for her to give birth to Jesus refers to the dogma that the Blessed Virgin Mary was conceived without any stain of original sin in a preparation for becoming the mother of God, the Son, Jesus Christ. 
the creation of Mary is actually also a quite a miracle. Uh, there's a write, early Christian writing from the second century called the Proto-Evangelium of James, and in it, it describes Jesus' parents, Joachim and Anne. And they had been praying to God to conceive a child for many years, and they were very advanced in life, sort of like uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And eventually God did give them a child, and they named that child Mary. So even Joachim and Anne is kind of a miracle. And they dedicated Mary to service in the temple, but when she came of age and became a woman, she needed a, a husband. Because in Jewish culture at that time, women had no rights and they were not covered under God's covenant unless they were connected to a man, either their father or mother, because the sign of the covenant with God was circumcision. And since women can't receive circumcision, they had to be connected to a man to be part of God's covenant. So that's how Mary ended up with Joseph as her husband. Before the creation of the world, God the Father chose the Blessed Virgin Mary to be the mother of his son, Jesus Christ. The archangel Gabriel announced to her that she was full of grace in Luke chapter 1, verse 29, or God's favored one, as in some scriptures translations, indicating her unique worthiness to conceive the Son of God. And she was enriched by God with the gifts which befit such a role. From the very beginning, the church has believed not only that the Blessed Virgin Mary was a virgin, but also that she was not conceived with any stain of original sin, into which everyone is conceived after the sin of Adam and Eve. This unique privilege enabled her to fulfill perfectly her unique mission as the mother of God. God the Father blessed the mother of his Son more than any other created person. In Christ, with every spiritual blessing and the heavenly places, and chose her in Christ before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love. The Church has celebrated the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary with a feast since perhaps as early as the 5th century, and it was made a holy day of obligation in 1708. December 8th marks the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. It celebrates an important, important point of Catholic teaching, and it is a holy day of opportunity. So we are obligated to go to church on this day to celebrate that Mary was conceived without sin so that she could bring Jesus to us to save us. In the end, it's all about Jesus, but what God did through Mary for us. So that's why we recognize Mary as the mother of God and why she had to be immaculately conceived to hold the holy word made flesh. 
So here's some history on the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Initially, the Christian Church taught a belief that is close to modern conservative Protestantism, simply that Mary was a virgin at the time of the conception of Jesus. Yadmer, a monk of Christ Church in Canterbury, England, and he lived between 1066 and 1124, was one of the first proponents of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. He discussed it in his book, De Conception Sancre Maria, that is Latin for the Conception of St. Maria, Mary. St. Thomas Aquinas, who lived between 1225 and 1274, and St. Bonaventure in who lived between 1221 and 1274, believed that Mary was completely free from sin, but that she was not given this grace at the instant of her conception. Their beliefs were supported by the Dominicans. In 17, in, I'm sorry, in 1476, Pope Sixtus the Sixth established the Feast of the Immaculate Conception to be observed annually on December 8th, nine months before the church celebrates the anniversary of Mary's birth. But the Roman Catholic laity and clergy was permitted to accept or reject the concept. This freedom was confirmed at the Council of Trent in the mid-16th century. However, Oxford, Franciscans, William of Ware, and blessed John Duns Scotus supported the full doctrine. By having Mary free of original sin resulted in both Mary's and Jesus' conception, conceptions being miraculous. The concept of the Immaculate Conception that Mary was conceived without sin while pre-embryo around about 20, before, uh, 20 B.C., gained support in the church. It was only in modern times that scientists determined that both the woman and man contributed genetic information to the production of offspring. In ancient times, the man was regarded as being totally responsible for the start of pregnancy. The only role of the woman was to nurture the growing embryo, and later the fetus. A good analogy is the act of planting a seed in the earth. The woman's role was similar to that of the earth. The soil was, has no role other than furnishing nutrients to the seed and later to the plant. When the woman's role in conception was discovered by medical scientists, the Roman Catholic Church faced a problem. For the first time, Mary was seen to play a direct role in Jesus' conception. Her contribution would have been expected to pass original sin on to Jesus, an intolerable arrangement because the church has taught that Jesus was without sin at his birth and during his life on earth. The church had two choices to declare that Mary did not pass original sin on to Jesus at the time of his conception or to declare that Mary herself was free of sin when she was conceived. They selected the latter route. It is now a required belief for Roman Catholics 
In 1854, Pope Pius IX proclaimed in his bull Ineffabilis that we declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which asserts that the Blessed Virgin Mary, from the moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, was preserved free from every stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God, and for this reason must be firmly and constantly believed by all the faithful. So this is where we get the idea that this is when the church determined that it is now a required belief, a dogma in the Catholic Church. And it's one of those rare occasions that Pope Pius IX, the chair of Peter, to create a dogma for the Catholic Church. So here are eight things you need to know about the teaching and the way to celebrate the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Who does the Immaculate Conception refer to? There's a popular idea that it refers to Jesus' conception by the Virgin Mary, but it doesn't actually refer to that. Instead, it refers to the special way in which the Virgin Mary herself was conceived. This conception was not virginal. That is, that she had a human father as well as a human mother, Saints Joachim and Anne, but it was a special and unique in another way. So what is the Immaculate Conception? The Catechism of the Catholic Church explains it this way. Paragraph 490 says, To become the mother of the Savior Mary. Let me try that again. Paragraph 490 in the Catechism says, To become the mother of the Savior, Mary was enriched by God with gifts appropriate to such a role. The angel Gabriel, at the moment of the Annunciation, salutes her as full of grace. In fact, in order for Mary to be able to give the free assent of her faith to the announcement of her vocation, it was necessary that she be wholly born of God's grace. Paragraph 491 tells us, through the centuries, the church has become ever more aware that Mary, full of grace through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception. That is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses, as Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854. The Most Blessed Virgin Mary was, from the moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. Does this mean that Mary never sinned? Yes. Because of the way redemption was applied to Mary at the moment of her conception, she not only was protected from contracting original sin, but also personal sin. 
The Catechism explains in paragraph 493, the fathers of the Eastern tradition call the mother of Mary the all-holy, Panagia, and celebrate her as free from any stain of sin, as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. By the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. Let it be done to me according to your word. Does this mean that Mary didn't need Jesus to die on the cross for her? No. What we've already quoted states that Mary was immaculately conceived as part of her being full of grace and thus redeemed from the moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race. The Catechism goes on to state in paragraph 492, the splendor of an entirely unique holiness by which Mary is enriched from the first instant of her conception comes wholly from Christ. She is redeemed in a more exalted fashion by reason of the merits of her Son. The Father blessed Mary more than any other created person in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and chose her in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Paragraph 508 from the Catechism tells us, from among the descendants of Eve, God chose the Virgin Mary to be the mother of his son. Full of grace, Mary is the most excellent fruit of redemption. From the first instant of her conception, she was wholly preserved from the stain of original sin, and she remained pure from all personal sin throughout her life. Again, all in preparation to be the mother of God and the new Ark of the Covenant. How does this make Mary a parallel of Eve? Adam and Eve were both created immaculate, without original sin or its stain. They fell from grace, and through them mankind was bound to sin. Christ and Mary were also conceived immaculate. They remained faithful, and through them mankind was redeemed from sin. Christ is thus the new Adam and Mary the new Eve. The Catechism quotes or notes in paragraph 9494, as St. Irenaeus says, being obedient, she became the cause of salvation for herself and for the whole human race. Hence, not a few of the early church fathers gladly assert the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. What the Virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, Mary loosed with her faith. Comparing her with Eve, they call Mary the mother of the living and frequently claim death through Eve, life through Mary. How does this make Mary an icon of our own destiny? Those who die in God's friendship and thus go to heaven, will be freed from all sin and stain of sin. We will thus be rendered immaculate. The Latin word immaculatus equals stainless. 
we will be without the stain of sin before we enter heaven. If we remain faithful to God, even in this life, God purifies us and trains us in holiness, and if we die in his friendship, but imperfectly purified, he will purify us in purgatory and render us immaculate so that we can enter heaven. Because Revelation chapter 21 tells us nothing unclean can enter heaven. By giving Mary this grace from the moment of her conception, God showed us an image of our own destiny. He shows us that it is possible for humans, by his grace, John Paul II noted, in, con in contemplating this mystery in a Marian perspective, we can say that Mary, at the side of her son, is the most perfect image of freedom and of the liberation of humanity and of the universe. It is to her, as mother and model of the church, that the church must look in order to understand its completeness the meaning of her mission. And this is from the Congregation of, for the Doctrine of the Faith, Liberatus Conscientious. The, the Pope wrote on the March 22, 1968. Let us fix our gaze then on Mary, the icon of the Pilgrim Church in the wilderness of history, but on her way to the glorious destination of the heavenly Jerusalem, where she and the church will shine as the bride of the Lamb, Christ the Lord. Was it necessary for God to make Mary immaculate at her conception so that she could be Jesus' mother? No. The church only speaks of the immaculate conception as something that was fitting, something that made Mary a fit habitation that is, a suitable dwelling, for the Son of God, not something that was necessary. We don't tell God what he can or cannot do. God can do whatever he wants. But, apparently, from what we know now through history, this was God's plan. Thus, it is proper, um, thus, in preparing to define the dogma, Pope Pius IX stated, and hence they, the Church Fathers, affirm that the Blessed Virgin was, through grace, entirely free from every stain of sin and from all corruption of body, soul, and mind, and that she always united with God and joined to him by eternal covenant, that she was never in darkness, but always in light, and that, therefore, she was entirely a fit habitation for Christ, not because of the state of her body, but because of her original grace. For it was certainly for it was certainly not fitting that this vessel of election should be wounded by the common injuries, since she, differing so much from others, had only nature in common with them, not sin. In fact, it was quite fitting that as the only begotten has a father in heaven whom the seraphim extol as thrice holy, that is, holy, 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 so he should have a mother on earth 
who would never be without splendor of holiness. So how do we celebrate the Immaculate Conception today? In the Latin rite of the Catholic Church, December 8th is the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. In the United States and a number of other countries, it is a holy day of opportunity, and we are obligated to attend Mass that day. The constant faith, the teaching of the Church, attests to the belief in the special preparation of the holiness of the person of Mary to bear in her body the most holy person of the Son of God. And this is from the Church Fathers. It is implicitly found in the Church Fathers, the Fathers of the Church, in the parallelism between Eve and Mary, um, as written by St. Irenaeus of Lyons around 180 A.D., found in more general terms about Mary, holy, innocent, most pure, intact, immaculate. Also written by Irenaeus, Ephraim of Syria, and Ambrose of Milan. And Ephraim of Syria wrote between 306 and 373. And Ambrose of Milan, he lived between 373 and 397. Well, he wrote between 373 and 397. So these are early, very early understandings in the church about Mary's stainlessness uh, and being free from original sin and being immaculate. And it is important to note that Irenaeus learned the faith from St. Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna. And St. Polycarp learned the faith from the Apostle John. So Irenaeus writes about Mary being the new Eve. He's teaching something that he learned from Polycarp that learned it from John. And the fact that the teaching was accepted by the rest of the church shows us that this was a very commonly understood teaching in the church and that we don't have any other early Christians writing against it. It was generally accepted, and we should also accept it as an early church teaching. Now, we have explicit language of Mary being free from original sin by St. Augustine of Hippo, writing between 395 and 430, and to Anselm in Normandy, which is in northern France, who wrote between um, 1033 and 1109. Well, I guess that would be when he lived. Yes. Now, the eastern part of the Catholic Church celebrated the Feast of the Conception of Mary in the 8th to the 9th century. So this is an understanding of Mary even in the eastern part of the church. Now, in the western part of the Catholic Church, they celebrated a Feast of the Conception of Mary as early as the 12th century. A record of the Feast in the 11th century is found in Great Britain and in the 12th century in Normandy. There's also a record in many churches 
of the Feast of the Conception of Mary in France, Germany, Italy, and Spain in the 12th century, as written by Bernard of Clairvaux between 1090 and 1153. In the 14th century, it was noted for the opposition to the Immaculate Conception from some of the great doctors of scholasticism. The celebration of the feast was not denied, though. The difficulty arose from the meaning of the universal redemption through Christ. In the 15th century, the Franciscan theologians solved the difficulty. The most perfect mediator preserved Mary from original sin by an equally perfect act of healing. Duns Scotus of Scotland, who lived between 1266 and 1308, explained that the Immaculate Conception came through God's application of the grace of Christ beforehand. Also from the 15th century, the feast was universally celebrated and Christian piety introduced an oath to defend the belief of the Immaculate Conception to be taken not only by religious, but also by non-religious at the universities. That is the University of Paris in 1497 and the University of Cologne in 1499 and the University of Vienna in 1501. An important side note here is that the universities of Europe, and which are the model for universities here in the United States, were Catholic schools, and the idea that each school taught the same thing, they became known as universities. So you could start your schooling at one university, and then move to another university and pick up your teaching there because all the universities taught the same thing. And the root word of university, of course, is universal, which means it's the same everywhere. In 1854, Pope Pius IX infallibly defined from the chair of Peter that the Blessed Virgin Mary in the first instant of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the foreseen merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin. So some Protestants might like to say that, you know, the Catholic Church didn't start teaching that this doctrine of the Immaculate Conception until 1854. And that's because they are ignorant, long history in the Catholic Church of Mary being immaculately conceived as a uh, type of a new Eve in the early church. So that's why I went through so much of the early history of how we came to recognize Mary as the mother of God. And the fact that she had to be immaculately conceived so that she would be a suitable new Ark of the Covenant for the Word of God made flesh. And let's see. 
if you'd like oh, okay yeah here's some more about from the early church fathers uh, we turn to the early church father the early fathers of the church first of all not all of them made sweeping statements about her holiness so in the early church it was not the understanding of how Mary was immaculately conceived was not fully defined. They could imply an immaculate conception, but very many of them speak of her as the new Eve. They could also have reasoned that the first Eve had an immaculate start in life. No sin was yet committed. So the new Eve who was to share in undoing the harm of the original sin, should also have an immaculate start. And again, the teaching that Mary was immaculately conceived is about Jesus because he needed a immaculate ark for him to come into the world through. through. Uh, so in the end, it's all about Jesus and Mary's role in Jesus coming to save us. So thanks for tuning in today. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com that's catholic with a k and at the number four or the number four dot com or look me up on facebook if you would like to have me come speak at your parish on this or many other topics send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on facebook and if you'd like to know more about the Catholic faith and or would like a good introductory guide to the Catholic faith, uh, I recommend my book, How Old Is Your Church? It's an introductory guide to Catholic apologetics. And you can find it on Amazon for only $6. It makes a great stocking stuff stuffer. It's only 100 pages long. And I cover 25 topics in those 100 pages. So each topic is only about four pages long. And it's written in very simple English. So you don't have to be a Bible scholar or a theologian in order to understand it. It's a great introductory guide for uh, cradle Catholics that, that don't really know their faith, for converts for Protestants that want to know about the Catholic faith. Also, if you have a godchild or a, if you're a sponsor for someone making their confirmation, it's a great book for them. And at the end of my book, I have my email address for follow-up questions. And you can, there's also a list of other sources that you can read further on. But I wanted to find a, or to create a book that would allow people to get a start in Catholic apologetics without being overwhelmed. 
Each chapter in my book could be a whole book unto itself. But if I gave somebody 25 books and say, well, this is what you need to know about the Catholic faith, well, they would never read them all. because <laughs> It would be too overwhelming for them. Um, so these are some of the chapters in my book. The first one is, why be a Christian? And then after that, we have, why go to church? And then after that, we have evolution, the evolution of Judaism into Christianity. And then we have the church that Jesus left behind to carry on his ministry. And then we have a chart that shows the development of Christian worship, which evolved out of Jewish worship. It's a great chart that shows that what we do in the Catholic Church today is what was done by Christians, at least in the second century, as shown to us by Justin Martyr. And it also goes back to the Jewish worship at the time of Jesus. And then there's a chapter on that is a short history of the Bible. A lot of people don't know where the Bible came from and just assume that we always had the Bible. But if you study a little bit, you find out that the Bible, the Old Testament was written over many years, and the New Testament, all the writings come from the first century, but not of all of them were universally accepted in the first century. And then there's a chapter on baptism, then the Eucharist. There's another chapter on the Eucharist, real presence or real symbol. And then I have a chapter on salvation as a process. There's a chapter on salvation by faith or believing alone, and a chapter on salvation by faith and works. There's also a chapter on can a saved person lose their salvation? and a chapter on how the sacrament of reconciliation keeps us holy, a chapter on purgatory in the Bible, and also a chapter on indulgences. And there's a chapter on apostolic authority, succession, and tradition. And there's a chapter on the Pope or the Bishop of Rome, and a chapter on the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, a chapter on the Virgin Mary, a chapter on praying with Mary and the saints, statues. There's also a chapter on statues, images, and relics in the church. There's also a chapter on the truth about the rapture. And a, Catholic, a chapter on a Catholic church um, view on the end times. And then there's also a chapter on how to use this information for evangelization. So thanks for tuning in, and thank you for your time today. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to others. Bye now.